Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Glad to have you here. All right, we are in the small but mighty book of Jude, a little tiny book that didn't want to be written, you could maybe say. Uh, Jude sat down to write a letter about salvation and how wonderful it is to be saved and encourage the saints in salvation. And they said, but there was something more needful right now that I would write. And it's that we would earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And he, this need, it was so relevant that he felt at that moment that God and, of course, the Holy Spirit working through him, telling him what to write. And when I think about it, it is just as relevant or more today than it was then. When I planned this series talking about holding fast, you know, a month or two ago, I wasn't even thinking that this would be Pride Month. But, but here we are. And, uh, and so, as we talk about this, this is all God to be, I think, bring this together at this time in our lives and as believers. In fact, just this last week, you may have heard this, but U.S. Representative Ted Lieu of Southern California on Wednesday made a short speech on the House floor in Washington that has gone viral. The video has gone viral. It was about, he was talking about the many states that are creating bills to combat all the transgenderism stuff in schools and with all the children. That was the topic. But Lou, who says he's Catholic and has said that several times, um, he said this, quote, I would like to quote what Jesus Christ says about homosexuality. And then he just went silent for about 20 seconds. He just let it sit there. And then he pretty much just sat down. Everybody said, wow, what a, what a powerful, a powerful <laughs> moment. And it, it, by the way, it's amazing to see how everybody wants to claim Jesus for their cause. <laughs> Whatever cause they have, oh, Jesus was this, Jesus was this. This uh, representative also did a similar thing on Twitter in response to those Tampa Bay baseball players who wouldn't wear the pride colors on their jerseys. Now, I must say, this was clever. Uh, there is no account of Jesus on this earth saying specifically, thou shalt not practice homosexuality. But I'm afraid Representative Lou is delving into matters that he has absolutely no clue about. Or he's just completely ignorant. There are so many things wrong with what he implied that we don't even have time to go into all of it. We could literally be here all morning. But just a couple things real quick that I do want to mention that I probably should mention about that. First, it just at first glance, he's using a misdirect. His topic is transgenderism, and he changes over to homosexuality. That's one thing. Sharp there. Jesus did talk directly about transgenderism, if you will. Jesus very clearly said God hath, has created men or created people male and female. He didn't allow for any other any other sexes there. Jesus also upheld marriage between a man and a woman in that same passage. 
So he, he upheld no homosexual marriage. And as far as the act of homosexuality, the word that Jesus used, fornication, covers that. And, and Jesus very clearly condemned that. So it's in there. And Jesus is God, which means he wrote all of Scripture from beginning to end. And it deals with homosexuality several times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I don't know Mr. Liu, and, I, and this is not the first time that he's made arrogant statements in the past years about biblical things and being a Christian. But since he's made those claims, it leads me to believe that either he's completely ignorant or that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it appears to me that he may be using his position, claiming the name of Christ, twisting scripture, and then leading others astray. The word for this is apostate. Now remember, an apostate is not someone, is not a true believer that has abandoned salvation. Uh, when somebody is saved, they are a true believer and God holds them and keeps them in his hand. But an apostate is a person who has professed to accept the truth and trust the Savior and then turns from the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You know, in 1 John 2.19, John addressed these folks that, that leave the faith, uh, these apostates, and he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they may be made manifest or made clear that they were not all of us. So apostasy, real quick, is, the, is from the Greek word apostasia. It means a defiance of an established system or authority, a rebellion, an abandonment, or breach of faith. In the first century world, this word was used as a technical term for political revolt or defection, but it came to be used mostly for spiritual apostasy. So when we talk about apostasy, there are kind of two main types. Number one is a falling away from the key and true doctrines of the Bible into heretical teachings, but still claiming that you're, I'm, I'm the real Christian here. This is the real Christian doctrine that I'm professing. Or number two, it's a complete renunciation of the Christian faith, which then results in a complete abandonment of Christ. We see that a lot right now. Now, there, there are some other examples in history, you have Joseph Smith who left the Christian faith and eventually started Mormonism. You have Charles Taze Russell who left the Christian faith, started what we call the Jehovah's Witnesses. The stories of apostates are plentiful throughout history. You can go all the way back to the 300s AD and even in the New Testament they're talking about it. Many of the Christian creeds that were created were created because of apostates and, and heretical teaching. The Nicene Creed is a good example, it was worded to combat the heretical teachings of Arius who did not believe that the Son of God or, or Jesus was of the same essence or substance of the Father. That's what he taught. And Arius, Arius was very charismatic. He wrote songs. He gained a following. People just loved him. They were drawn to him. But he fought pastors and spiritual leaders. And finally, the end result was, okay, we need to have a, a council about this. And they did it in Nicaea, and, and that's where we get the Nicene Creed. And listen to what they said. They clarified in their statement, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And by the way, he was excommunicated during the same thing. But then they wrote this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, 
And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, they repeated again, with the Father. They were wanted to be very clear that this is the true faith. On and on the list goes. Sometimes these people, they leave and start new religions. Sometimes they leave churches, leave the faith, and just persuade others to follow in their footsteps. And now, with the internet and all that, social media, it's, we're hearing about pastors, Christian musicians, and others leaving the faith, gaining a following in their salad bar religion. Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that from everybody, and I'm going to create my own concept. But don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised this week if you hear about another one. Don't be surprised the following week. God has set up a plan for false prophets. He has a way to deal with them. He dealt with it in the Old Testament. He very clearly laid it out because it was a problem then. Jesus talked about what would happen to false prophets. Peter and Paul did too. And in fact, somebody has said that every New Testament book except Philemon warns about false teaching. It's so pervasive. This was and continues to be a problem. So Jude sees the need. I would love to just write about the common salvation that we all have, but it's needful that I write that we earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. We have to hold fast. And he was going to lay out in plain language the characteristics of these apostates here and how serious God takes it. Which reminds us then, as we think about this here this morning, how serious our duty is. If God takes this serious, then so should we. The next generation is relying on us, you and me, to stay true to the faith. They, they need us. I think back on my life and I realize that I am where I am and you are where you are because someone else fought the fight and didn't let go. Someone kept going, no matter what. So let's catch up where we left off. It's in verse four, Jude verse four. Let's remind ourselves where we were. For there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old were ordained, or before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's the four markers of apostates we talked about in the church there. He says they were, they're deceivers. They creep in unaware. They secretly come in. No one knows that's why they're there, but that's why they're there. They are ungodly, meaning they're ungodlike in all their ways. They did manipulators of grace. They turned grace into a license to sin. And then they denied the lordship of Christ. They would not see Jesus as God. They would not see Jesus as Lord and submit to him. And the people who do this, it says, are before of old ordained to this condemnation. In other words, the Old Testament writers who talked about false prophets and teachers were very clear that there was condemnation, there was judgment was going to fall on these false prophets. And it wasn't just the Old Testament, it was Jesus that said they would come and be condemned. It was Peter and Paul that said they would come and be condemned. And Judas saying, here they are. This is what they've been talking about. And we knew they were coming and don't be surprised. And they face a very severe judgment from the Lord. And he gives three biblical examples now in verse five here, as we're going to start that, of how God dealt with apostates in the past and that's a warning for us today. 
and in the future. Verse five, here we go. I will therefore put you in remembrance, he says, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So Jude starts by putting them in remembrance. In other words, you need to remember this. You need to remember this. And by the way, having a memory is so important to our faith that we know and we remember what the word of God says. And to remember what the word of God says, you need to read the word of God. And as we, we look at all these passages today, we're gonna see many, several different Old Testament stories. And I wonder if you could say, yep, I've read about that. Yep, I've read about that in the scripture, and I remember it. But Jesus says, you need to remember this. We need to remember this. First example he brings up is that God brought them out of Egypt. And then, he, as he brought the people out of Egypt, he ended up destroying them in the wilderness because they left the faith. They didn't believe. You, you remember the story. God brought them all the way out of Egypt up to the edge of the promised land. Twelve spies were sent in to spy out the promised land. When those twelve came back, two of them were confident. Joshua and Caleb, we can do this. God is uh, our victory. God is our strength. We can do this. They were full of faith. But the other ten spies said that, uh, excuse me, those people are giants. They are huge over there. We're not going to be able to do this. We cannot win. They would not believe God. Just like all those other complainers in the wilderness uh, to God. God, why did you bring us out here? Why, we want to go back to Egypt. Are we just going to die out here in the wilderness, God? They stopped trusting the Lord. So God made the judgment. You want to you talking about dying in the wilderness? That's exactly what's going to happen then. Anyone 20 years old or older, you're going to die in this wilderness. And it, the only people who are going to make it into the promised land are Joshua and Caleb, the men of faith. Now, if you think about that, some, some say there was about 1.2 million or could have been even more uh, Hebrews out in the wilderness there. If you start thinking about that, if there's if there's more, then there's about 1.2 million people over the age of 20. So for 40 years, do you know how many people were dying every single day? Approximately, that's 82 people dying every day for 40 years. About 577 people per week dying. Now, that is a constant reminder that death was the penalty for not having faith in the one true God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This doesn't mean that everybody who was brought out of Egypt then lost their salvation. They were saved and then they lost their salvation. No. Although God delivered them out of Egypt, not all of them were born again personally. Everyone, every single person has to make a decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ. God has made provision for their salvation, for all of our salvation and even theirs. And they need to trust in him. What a lesson about leaving the faith. Uh, th that's what Jude is saying. Remember, these people, they should have had faith. They were there. They had everything, everything necessary to have a strong faith, just like Joshua and Caleb, but they didn't. And notice what God did to them. The next example goes back further in history. Verse 6, and the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. 
Now this goes back all the way to the beginning in the spiritual realm. And we, and we have very little detail about this topic in the whole of scripture. It's kind of mysterious, but it appears to me to be talking about the original fall of the angels that fell with Lucifer. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, give us a little more about that. But apparently it appears that some of the fallen angels that came out with Lucifer um, are assigned, are, are chained, as it says here, un, un, chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They will be judged in the end. Now there are others that fell with Lucifer, fell with Satan, who are permitted to roam to and fro, angels or demons, fallen angels, demons, who are following Satan's lead and tempting and doing their work here. Now, there are lots of people smarter than I who would maybe take it a little differently. Some think that this could be speaking of the incident in Genesis chapter six where the sons of God, thinking that means angels, came and united in sexual relations with women on earth and created these, uh, these giants, Nephilim. But if that was the case, we still have to account for them being reserved and chains unto the, unto the judgment. And there are several ways they would account for that. But to me, as, as I was studying this this week and looking through just, again, all the different thoughts on this, there are too many holes in that theory, and I, I can't, we can't go into all of that for time's sake. But, in my, but it doesn't really matter. The point Jude is making here at this moment is that if God would judge angels for their apostasy, denying the lordship of Christ, do you think he would hesitate to judge someone here for doing the same exact thing? No, he would not. God has always dealt seriously with apostasy. That's what the point Jude is making. Now one more example, probably the most famous here, and that's in verse seven. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, by the way, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, there were several other cities there that were destroyed, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So this is our third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did God judge them? Well, it says in this verse the reason, because they gave themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Now this term, strange flesh, refers to unnatural sexual acts. Flesh that you're not meant to have sex relationships with. This has always been interpreted throughout history as homosexuality. Until the last few years, when people now are really trying to reinterpret that meaning and put a different spin on it. But God is putting Sodom and Gomorrah now, as he's talking about their judgment that God had to deal with back in the Old Testament during the time of Abraham, he's putting that now in context of the apostates in Jude's day. Both Sodom and the apostates apparently believed in this, in they, they had freedom, as somebody has called it, immoral sexual autonomy. I can do what I want with my body, my body, my choice. They left the natural design of God that God obviously put into motion and, he, and they give, give themselves over to fornication and to strange flesh. And by the way, there were probably other things going on that weren't just homosexuality, but that's any strange flesh 
far worse than, than even that. The apostates even excused it. Apostates in Jude's day, they said, listen, the grace of God uh, covers us. Uh, it's, we're, we're covered from all sin. They've, Jude said they turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's all manner of wicked and evil immorality. They tell you, you can do whatever you want. You're covered by grace. But let's be clear here. You cannot turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and think that God's gonna be okay with that. We just can't. This has to be one of the reasons that God takes this so seriously. It's one thing to do those actions. It's another thing to use God's word to excuse them and then teach others to do the same. And just as God judged Sodom, he says that's, that's an example. This is an example for everyone. And by the way, Genesis 13 says that Sodom and Gomorrah was a beautiful, lush land. It was beautiful. That's why Lot turned his tent toward Sodom. It was desirable. But, but they lived in that beautiful place full of ease and life was easy and they started to use their idle time for horrible things. And God would not hesitate to judge those who go headlong into sin. And that's what I think God is telling us through Jude here. You're gonna go headlong into sin and you're gonna use uh, the grace of God, something as precious as that, to, to turn that and say it's okay as a scapegoat. The liberal theologians and the churches of today are trying their best to do this very thing. Trying to, their best to get us to believe that the Bible is not against homosexuality. So many, unfortunately, so many of the, um, the denominations are dealing with this, with this right now. And churches having to pull out of denominations because of the decisions that are being made. It's so sad. But I came across this helpful letter by one of the most foremost experts in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's an archaeologist and he's a historian. And it's kind of long, but I want to read it to you and I think it'll, it'll be a help. Here's what he said. As an archaeologist and historian, I think there is something that current apostate church leaders, be they theologians or ministers, have completely missed, of which they are either factually or willfully ignorant. Their tack on embracing LGBTQ lifestyles always goes something like this. The Bible was written in ancient cultural milieus. Uh, uh-oh, we're not working? Oh, man. So pay attention. Social structures... And God accommodated himself to the people of those cultures. In other words, we must therefore adapt to make scripture relevant to our evolving culture, realizing that the New Testament writers spoke to their day. Similarly, we must adjust for and speak to our day. Now, while this may sound logical, even reasonable, it is categorically wrong and entirely lacking in an understanding of history. Old Testament revelation came at a time when sexuality was fluid, unfettered, and wives were for keeping households and having and raising children. The sexual lives of men and women were often, if not usually, of a same-sex nature, especially in military contexts. This is what archaeology reveals and what the Old Testament presents as the ancient pagan reality. As Christianity eventually washed over the Roman world, Western culture shifted toward biblical morality. Judaism and Christianity were never accommodating to sexual perversion, but were clearly corrective to bring humankind in line with God's creative design. 
Now that Western culture is moving away from the Bible, society is returning to what had been the old norms of sex without bounds. God's Old Testament and New Testament revelation were prescriptive and corrective. To bend or reinterpret revelation, that is the Bible, to accommodate meandering sexual norms not only ignores why it is given in the first place, but it also strips revelation of its power to keep humanity from destructive perversion. The LGBTQ movement is nothing more or less than the norms of ancient sexual license and perversion rising up in the guise of evolving morality, as if that is something noble. It is not. Take away the corrective scripture and humans readily return to their old vomit. That is Stephen Collins, who's a PhD and executive dean at the Trinity of Southwestern University. I want to thank God for men like this out there who are on the front lines. He's dug up Sodom and Gomorrah. He finds things all the time of what's going on over there. But the story of Sodom reminds us that God will be the final judge of all of this. Not us, not me, nobody here. God will be the final judge. And Sodom is well known as the ultimate example, it says in this verse, of eternal fire, the eternal judgment on sin. It's sort of one thing we can point to and say, we know God deals seriously with sin. We do not celebrate that, and I say that with all the grace that I can in my heart. I weep about this. Anytime, I want to, anytime we talk about hell, I think we ought to do it with tears in our eyes. Then Jude turns his attention to a description of the apostates. He said, verse eight, likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. First it says they are filthy dreamers. A mark of these apostates, Jude says, is that they do not abide by an absolute truth. They abide by their own dreams. They live by their dreams. Whatever their dreams or corrupt fantasies come up with, that's what they do. And today we see this so much, absolute truth and an absolute moral law is considered old-fashioned, patriarchal, whatever. We now then are instead supposed to accept, tolerate, and embrace whatever anybody dreams up. If you dream it up, you came up with it in a dream or, you, or just a, in your own thinking, you like it, sure, we're supposed to just accept that, embrace it, enjoy it, and pat you on the back. Things haven't really changed. They also, it says, despise dominion, meaning that they hate authority. I'm not sure which authority God is specifically talking about here, but I suspect it's all authority. They hate God's authority. They hate governmental authority. They hate church authority. Any of it. Then it says they speak evil of dignities. Not only do they hate authority, but they speak evil of those that God has placed in authority. They go talk to their cronies and, and get them to hate the authority along with them. God, but he, God says they're speaking evil, but God sees all of it. He's in every little discussion. He's in every little conversation. All these conversations that are trying to sow discord, God sees that these apostates trying to get people to their side, God hears it all. And this speaking evil of dignitaries thing is so serious that Jude then gives us an example which is mind-boggling. Verse 9. And I'm going to read 9 and 10 together, then explain them. Here we go. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, 
Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. <laughs> of all the authorities in the world, the authorities, the one you would think you could speak evil of is the devil. <laughs> you would think you could just be able to say whatever you want. And yet, God says, look at what happened. When Michael the archangel, who was the archangel, he was top dog. The only one worthy, a worthy opposite of Lucifer. There, Lucifer is not the opposite of God. He is not anywhere close to God. But Lucifer is an opposite of Michael. But even in this situation, Michael would not rebuke Lucifer. He would not rebuke Satan, but ask the Lord to do it. Michael would not arrogantly mouth off about something he knew nothing about or that was above his authority level. Now that's the main point. But this is a mysterious story. It's told about in one of the apocryphal books called The Assumption of Moses, which those apocryphal books, many of them are useful for history, but not for inspired scripture. Apparently, when Moses died, it was Michael's job, this archangel, to bury Moses. And we, we see in the Old Testament what, uh, what God said, but we find out this little interesting story here. The devil came to, com uh, to dispute this with Michael the archangel. Some have, have suggested that he wanted, the devil wanted the body because he wanted to get the Jews to worship that body. If he knew, if all the Jews knew where Moses' body was buried, they would come. And, and, uh, and by the way, many Jews do love to worship at graves and tombs and things like that. But some instead say that it was because Moses had murdered someone, so Satan felt like he had the right to the body because uh, he's a murderer. But who knows, the important thing is, who knows the motive, but who, the real important thing is that God had given the job to Michael. So when Michael ran into opposition against the devil, instead of launching arrogantly into things that he knew nothing about really, and they were above him, he called on God to rebuke the devil. That's what it says. And get that devil out of the way, which is a wonderful way to defeat the enemy in our lives. Lord, you rebuke this enemy. I may not understand as much as they understand. I don't know all that's going on in the spiritual realm. I just don't but you do, and Lord, would you rebuke this right now? Whatever this situation, I feel a heaviness, I feel a darkness, I feel something. Lord, rebuke the enemy in my home, in my life. We can do this. The point Jude, though, is making in verse 10 is, can you believe these apostates think themselves greater than Michael? They'll speak evil about spiritual leadership, which they know nothing about. They'll speak evil about the word of God, which they don't even really understand because they don't have a spiritual nature. They speak evil of those things which they know not, it says. They're not born again. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not understand what they're talking about. But look at what it says in that verse. It says, in natural things, basically, they know a lot. <laughs> verse 11. In natural things, they're basically like animals. They just do whatever they want. And eventually they corrupt themselves in these natural things. And if we walk in their path, we follow them, we'll be corrupted too. Now quickly, I'm going to now move to verse 11. 
And we're going to end here on this verse. But I want to give the three famous, he said it's like these three famous apostates in the Bible. Verse 11, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Woe, it says. Woe is an exclamation of grief and sadness. In this case, Jude is saying woe because God's great wrath is coming to cause so much more grief than they, they could imagine if, you, if they keep down that path. People that leave God and say, I'm much happier now that I've left the church. I'm much happier now that I've left God. I would say woe unto you. Woe unto you. There's a day of pain coming that you don't even know. And here are the three bad guys of the Old Testament who found that out. The way of Cain, it says. The way of Cain is to have a form of a relationship with God, my own way, but not a real relationship in God's prescribed way. Remember Cain, he brought the wrong sacrifice. Abel brought the correct sacrifice. Cain thought he would rewrite God's command. Oh, it's okay. God will be fine with this. I'll just do it this way. Uh, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain brought a, 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 a sacrifice of the ground. God will be okay. We have an agreement. But just like the apostates who come to God in their own way, I'm going to come to God in my own way. You can't do that. The way of Cain does not work. You have to come to God the way he said to come to God. That's through Jesus Christ. You give your life to him. You accept him as your savior. And you are now part of God's great family. Then the number, number two example is the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam was to use your influence to persuade God's people to sin for your own selfish gain. Balaam, fascinating story, he was called upon by the enemy king, the Moabite king Balak, to curse the Jews. Hey, Balaam, come here. I want you to curse your people. And Balaam said, no way. I'm only gonna say what God says. And at this time, God is blessing Israel. And that's the only thing God's saying. Then King, King Balak said, okay, how about this? I'm going to offer you money. I'm going to offer you prestige. I'm going to get you every, everything you want. Just curse them. And Balaam tried, and I can't tell you the whole story right now, but ultimately Balaam figured out a way to get this done. He said, Balak, here's what you do. If you want God to curse my people, all you got to do is get them to sin. Here's what I suggest. Take the Moab, your women, have them dress seductively, have them go in, have them seduce the children of Israel, the men, and have them have sexual relations with them. And not only that, but bring out their idols right before that. And have them all bow down to the idol and worship. And that, then God will judge them for idolatry and adultery. And that, then you could, you've got them. And that's exactly what happened. It's horrible when we disobey God. But absolutely shameful when we get others to sin for our gain. That's what these apostates were doing. Getting others involved. Sometimes for money, sometimes for other selfish purposes, just to make me feel better because I got people on my side, whatever it is. Reminds me of some of these people who backslide maybe and go online, convince a bunch of others to follow them. What if one day you're backsliding and you're going away and you're away from the Lord, but then and you get all a bunch of people on your side and then you come back to the Lord. But all those people you talk to, they don't come back. I couldn't live with myself as if that was me. And then the third one here is the rebellion of Korah. 
or the gainsaying, it says in King James Version, which means contradiction or rebellion. The, co- the rebellion of Korah was to despise God's ordained authority and get the people to side with him. Korah was the guy who led a rebellion against Moses. He got a group of 250 men, very influential men, to go with him and confront Moses and Aaron. They came up to Moses and said, Moses, you take too much on you. In other words, you have too much authority. You shouldn't have this much authority. Moses, who never wanted this job to begin with, (laughs) fell on his face and was beside himself. So Moses says, okay, let's all stand before God. We're going to stand in the tabernacle. We're all going to put out our censers with the incense in it. You're Levites. I'm a Levite. And we're going to see who God sends fire down as the ordained leader and whoever burns that incense. When the day came, Korah stood out there and God (laughs) told Moses, Moses, you and Aaron, step aside. (laughs) Get out of the way. Don't stand near Korah. Just step aside. Okay. (laughs) Then God did something he had never done before and God opened up the ground and said and ate him up. And Korah went down to the ground immediately. Someone said he went to hell with his britches on. (laughs) God takes it seriously when we rebel against his ordained authority and then use our position to get others to do the same. I'm just kind of going back again to this U.S. representative at the beginning. When we use our position of authority to, to bring others with us, and this goes for any of us, but, but boy, what a thing to be careful about. Now in this, Jude has given us some strong words. I admit, this is strong content. But it's also very real, and it's also very protective. It's like God, I feel like, as a shepherd, and he's talking to his sheep with a big old staff and saying, I am here, and I'm helping you keep the wolves, I'm keeping the wolves away. And this is your part in helping me do this. Don't invite the wolves in with you. Have discernment. If there's one thing I could say for all of us, what we could really focus on is to sharpen our discernment. In the book of Hebrews, it says we, sh- we gain more discernment by reason of use, by strong meat, by taking the word of God and reading it and reading it and internalizing it and thinking about it and meditating on it and getting to know it. Then we are strong and we can discern between good and evil. But it only comes with use. It only comes the more we do it. So it's so important to sharpen our discernment against the wolves. Let us be discerning and don't let the wolves drag us away. Lord, we come to you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.